Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Lydia Finette is the lead benefit auctioneer at Christie's Auction House in New York City. She also happens to be the leading benefit auctioneer in the entire country. She's raised more than any other charity auctioneer. That's about a half a billion dollars from more than 400 nonprofits worldwide. She's shared the stage with the likes of Bruce Springsteen, As if that wasn't enough, she's also the mother of three lovely young children, and she's written a terrific book entitled The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. This book is chock full of incredible advice and perspective. Lydia is here with me today at the CDM Studios in New York City. We're going to talk about her career, what she's learned, And most importantly, why she wants to pay it forward. Lydia, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be on this podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you. It was so fun. I had a chance to meet you on your book tour this summer, and I got to introduce you to my daughter, who's nine. She's lovely. Oh, you're sweet. And you're such an inspiration for women and girls. So we're going to talk about all that good stuff. Let's talk about, I would say, your job, but you really have two, at least two jobs, <laughs> more like three or four. But at Christie's, you have two primary jobs. Two primary jobs. Talk about what you do. So I'd like to say that I have a day job and a night job. My day job is running a department called Strategic Partnerships that deals with all of the partnerships for the company globally. So if you are an external brand looking to work with Christie's, you would come to me, my department would help design the program for you, and we would help execute it. So that is my day job. My night job, which tends to be a little more glamorous, is charity auctioneering. And I take auctions, which is a term that we use in the auction world. Taking on auction means that you're the auctioneer on stage. I take auctions for, as you said earlier, nonprofits around the world. And I enjoy it immensely. I love being on stage raising money for different charities. It's just such an incredible thing to do. I've had one on Saturday evening. I had one last night. So this is definitely auction season, which is always really exciting. So how many in a given week do you typically do? Well, this fall is a little bit less simply because I had such an intense spring between the book tour and the auctions. But in past years, it's ranged anywhere from about 70 to 100 a year. So I really would try to cap it around 35 a season for the past five or six years after I started having kids. It works. People always said there's no way that you will be able to have children and take auctions. But because the auctions start so late, my children are usually asleep by the time that I leave, which is really great. So I can kind of come home. I know this sounds crazy. I can come up after work, spend a couple of hours with the kids, get homework done, get them bathed, get them in bed, and then walk out the door and take an auction on stage in front of a thousand people. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. I get it. it well, it's, it's a lot. And yeah. I think you know, you must have just an extraordinary amount of energy that enables you to do that. You know, the funny thing is the book really started because I was interviewed by the New York Times for a day in the life piece. And it was interesting because the piece really chronicled a day where I had a full day of work, went home to the children, and then took an auction in the evening. And because I have been taking auctions since I was 24 years old, so really for 16 years, 
I don't think anything is odd about it because it's been my life for so long. But the feedback from that article, my friends, family, I mean, people I'd never even heard of reached out to me over social media and were like, I can't believe this day. Like, how can you do this? This can't be true. And it just made me laugh because I've actually never thought anything of it. People used to say you could never do it if you had one kid. But then I had my first child and I was sort of like, well, she's in bed. I can still go back out. I mean, I'm tired, but I can still do it. Mm -hmm. And then with the second and third, I'd already done it. So it didn't seem daunting anymore. So, yes, it, it, may, it may seem crazy to everyone else. It seems totally normal to me. <laughs> it is. It is amazing. Let's talk about how you got to Christie's in the first place, which is a great story that you tell in the book. You started out as an intern, but the story story about how you got the internship I really love. It's just such a it's such a way that I live my life. I sort of focus on something and then I really start by a talking to every single person that I know about how I am going to do this. Foregone conclusion, I will work at Christie's. I'm really looking forward to when I work at Christie's. <laughs> I did not know anyone at Christie's. My parents were not art collectors. I'd never actually met anyone who purchased at Christie's, but I read an article about it and so it sparked my imagination and I knew that there was an internship program because I eventually met a woman who worked at Christie's and she said, "Well, really the only way to get a job here." And again, this was 20 years ago. The only way to get a job is to intern first, and then they hire people out of the internship. And I called the internship coordinator because this woman had given me her phone number. And as I say in the book, you know, the funny thing 20 years ago was there was no caller ID. So people picked up the phone every single time it rang. It was never a screening process. So this poor woman who had been at Christie's for, at that point, probably 30 years, kept picking up the phone every morning. And I would launch into this sort of speech that I'd written, you know, good morning, Mrs. Libby, it's Lydia Finette. And I'm so excited to speak with you because I believe today is going to be the day that we find out how I'm going to get into this internship program, which you have told me repeatedly is closed. And, you know, I think the first three or four times she thought it was kind of funny. And then I think after that, she was like, oh, God, please stop calling me. <laughs> and then after that, I just, I could tell that it wasn't working. And so I really thought, I need to figure out a different angle. Like, what is the angle here? Because whatever I'm saying isn't working. And so I, f I asked her, you know, why is the internship program capped? She told me it was capped at 30 people. Why is it capped at 30 people? And she said, well, because they have to take muse museum tours. And if you take a museum tour, they can't allow more than 30 people on those tours. And I said, well, what if I didn't go on the museum tours? And it was funny because, as I've often found in life, People say no because they think that the answer has to be no, when in fact there's usually a workaround. <laughs> so you just have to find the wormhole. <laughs> getting and to yes. Exactly. Getting <laughs> to yes. And so that was really the question because then it, it made her pause long enough for me to sort of just keep going. And, you know, if let's say someone was sick or, you know, maybe they didn't show up because if anyone's ever done an internship, there are always the interns who tend to be a little hungover. They're in college or they're sick or they have to go somewhere and they don't make it. If those people don't come – Perhaps I could show up. And so I think she was just so ready for an answer that when I gave her the answer, she was sort of like, I'll call, I'll call you right back. And then an hour later, she called me and said, fine, you can come do a modified internship. And the best part of it is that I actually went on all of those museum tours, I think with the exception of one, because, of course, as I said before, right. there was some, something happened every time. 30 people do not show up every single day. So it worked out. And here I am. So from there, was a was a full-time offer an obvious thing? Did you immediately fall in love with it? You know, sometimes internships will disavow you of the notion that you actually want to work on a place. But given that you've been at Christie's for 20-some-odd years, clearly you fell in love with it. What was it about the experience that immediately you took to? I really enjoyed the environment. I loved the people that I was surrounded by because everybody is so intelligent. They're so 
they're so learned and they, they are constantly looking for more, more culturally, more to do in New York. And so there were just sort of these opportunities that came out of nothing. It was, you know, I was sitting at my desk and someone would walk by and say to all of the interns, does anybody want to go to this museum tour tonight at the Met? Because I can't go and I have three extra tickets. And I live my life with the principle that the answer should always be yes to any opportunity. And I would always jump up and say, yes, yes, I, I'll go on that tour. I'll do that. And so I saw this sort of larger world coming out of this internship that even if during the day I was shredding paper and sort of marking things out with pencil, it wasn't necessarily about the internship. It was exposure to this fascinating world that I really wanted to understand more of. So at the end of that year, they, they actually asked me, they asked me if I wanted a full-time job. I was still a junior in college. So I went back the following year and interned again and was hired out of that internship. You get the job in events. You're working um, in that capacity. But then an opportunity opens up. Talk us through that next piece. So I started in the company when I was, it was 1999. And I had been in the role of events coordinator for about four, four and a half years. And the director, excuse me, the manager of the department left. And then the director left. And this happened in six months. And because it was a small department, Everyone sort of looked at me, and I immediately jumped at the opportunity, even though I didn't really know what it meant. And I, I also say often, like a lot of times, if someone's doing a good job above you, you don't know that it's hard because it looks very easy. So I just assumed that the jobs were very easy because the two women above me who had left were very good at their jobs. <laughs> and so I found myself as director of events for North and South America at the age of 26. And I was in that job for another four years. But events in an auction house is a really relentless job. I mean, you are literally at work 11 and a half months a year, except for two weeks of vacation, late nights, early morning, seven days a week. And because I loved it, I didn't mind. But after 10 years, I was kind of getting ready for my next step. Yeah, and this was before children, before Everything. marriage, before all of that. Exactly. Stuff. This was, you know, I was dating my husband at the time. He was in business school in Virginia. So we were doing long distance. So I had many evenings free and I could sort of stay as long as I needed to. But at the same time, it was right around the same time as the recession. And the recession sort of 2007 hit, 2008 looked like a very bleak year. And as often happens in any business, support departments are the first ones to lose staff. And so they sort of looked at us and were, were sort of like, mm, you're going to have to go from a department of three to a department of two, which really just didn't make any sense, A. And B, we would never have been able to get that headcount back had we lost it. And so I sort of said to my boss at the time, what if instead of us losing a member of the department, we just don't spend any money? And we look at this as a revenue opportunity where we could bring in money by looking for partners who might want Christie's Association during this time when they don't have marketing dollars. And he agreed to let me do it. We did it for six months. And after six months, we'd actually made a small profit. Wow. And that for me was that light bulb moment where I thought, well, if we could make a small profit, then we could probably make a much larger profit if we made it bigger. Right. And so that was the beginning of what is the department that I run now, which is called Strategic Partnerships. It was so interesting to me reading about that in the book because it seems like such an obvious thing. And right. yet people weren't doing that. This Ooh. was very innovative and, frankly, entrepreneurial on your part to sort of figure out a way to not only fix the problem that you had, but to create a whole separate line of revenue, yeah. essentially. Well, I think a lot of it was that I didn't want to leave Christie's, but there wasn't a role as global head of events. It wasn't something that anyone had the appetite for. So I saw this as an opportunity to not only stay with a company that I wanted to stay with, but also to really grow my role. Because 
in any job, in any company, and I say this to people all the time, you really have to chart your own path. I mean, yes, it's great that people will mentor you, but ultimately you need to know what you're doing because someone else has other things on their plate. And frankly, they probably are looking to see where they are going in their next step too. So the best employee is the employee who comes to you and says, listen, this is my vision for the next year. This is what I would like to be doing in three years, five years, because then you have someone who's invested in your company and they also have a vision for what they want to do. And in terms of, you know, if someone's looking at an opportunity to really chart their course in perhaps a different way than what the company has seen before, if the company's not open to at least letting them try, that may provide you with an answer for Absolutely. where you want to be potentially. And I think to your point, you know, 10 years ago, and people use the term entrepreneur all the time. I hear this all the time. And ultimately, that is what I was. But at the time, that wasn't something that people talked about. And I really have to say, I give my company so much credit for actually allowing me to do it because, you know, 10 years in a company is enough time to get enough trust built so that people will sort of give you that launching pad. But I don't know that everybody would do that. So it was it was a good show of faith from them, I will say. How have charity auctions changed and sort of the role of nonprofits evolved um, during your time with Christie's? They have they've changed significantly. I mean, when I first started taking charity auctions, it was sort of the thing that people did on the side. You know, it was, oh, gosh, someone has to go take an auction on a Saturday night at 1145 and hope, hope to God someone's still in the audience and maybe they'll make $1,000. And now nonprofits really rely on the money that the auctions bring in. And I go in. I mean, last night we raised against a goal of half a million. We raised over $600,000 in a room of 300 people. So it's about strategy. It's about ensuring that you are hitting people at the right time. I always say to people that the worst mistake you can make at a charity auction is putting an auctioneer on stage too late because you need people who are still engaged with the programming. And Mm -hmm. nine honorees and 40 speeches later, no one is paying attention. Even (laughs) if they were trying their best, no one except for the honoree's wife or husband is possibly paying attention at that point. So I always say, you know, put the auctioneer on early and make sure that you have lined up the bidders and then let them do their work. To your point about getting the audience's attention, here you are, you typically are with them for their gala dinner. They've had cocktails. They've had the salad, probably the entree. Maybe you're coming on around dessert time. Hopefully a little before. A little before (laughs) that, ideally. How do you get their attention? I know you've got a signature move, (laughs) but talk us through the strategy for getting people to engage. Like, what do you do to get them engaged? So I have a gavel that I use quite liberally. Every single time I get on stage, I hit the gavel down as hard as I can. And then I look at the audience and I give them a huge smile and I say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm so delighted to be here from Christie's Auction House. And then I throw in a joke, a joke that's relevant to something. Last night I was taking an auction for NYSIF, which is the New York Stem Cell uh, Foundation, and they have a science fair as part of their cocktail reception. And so I made a joke about how I had seen their science fair and it had given me nothing but agita about the fact that I felt like I was back in middle school and <laughs> I was so happy to be on stage and not having to be a participant in the science fair to start off the evening or something like that. So something to sort of draw them in. But the gavel strike for me is, you know, it is loud as anything. It gets the attention. I don't care if it's a room of 300 people or a room of 6,000 people. But it gives me an opportunity to really get the crowd to pay attention. And then it gives me the opportunity to just dive into the auction from that moment. 
a lot of times, as we talked about in the intro, you're sharing the stage with some pretty big names, mm-hmm. names that would make many of us, you know, a little bit nervous and maybe <laughs> kind of lose our bearings. How do you how do you keep your cool when you're with Bruce Springsteen or Madonna or Uma Thurman or any of these you know, various people that you find yourself spending time with? I say it's something my dad's always said. Everybody puts their boots on the same way in the morning. I just really try to remember that they're just people. And they really are. I mean, I've been backstage with some of the biggest acts in the world, and everyone is back there just sort of standing around, chatting, doing their thing. Everyone gets the little adrenaline boost before they go on stage. You can see people nervously fidgeting. It's like some people sort of shift from side to side. They flip their hair. They click a pen, whatever it is. But people have their stage persona. You know, they go out and they're this incredible creature who's, you know, Bruce Springsteen is an incredible artist and people love to hear him sing. But backstage, he's just a completely normal guy. And I take an auction called Stand Up for Heroes where, you know, we have four of the biggest comedians in the world. You know, Jerry Seinfeld, Jon Stewart, Seth Meyers and, you know, whomever else they bring out that year. And they do 15-minute sets, and all of them are standing backstairs, backstage laughing at the other ones. And Bruce Springsteen is standing there laughing at them, too, you know? <laughs> so it's a constant reminder. And because I've been doing this for so long, people are like, how do you get on stage with Hugh Jackman? I'm like, Hugh Jackman is a really nice guy. Honestly, he's just a really nice guy. And everybody says it, and it's true. And that's what you realize in this job, in these industries, that captains of industry, celebrities, they're all just people. And so if you don't come at them with that celebrity obsessed, oh, my God, and you just talk to them like normal people, they will speak to you like a totally normal person. Yeah. I'd have to work on that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Easier said than done Easier sometimes. said than done. Yes, yeah. exactly. Talk about your process. So you have auctions many nights of the week in addition to your day job, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned. What's your process? How much preparation does an auction take? So much less than it used to. I mean, you know, now I get the lots usually the day of and I read over them once or twice beforehand. But so much about an auction, a charity auction, is what I see from stage. It has very little to do with the lots. I mean, certainly I need to know the specifics, but that's on a piece of paper in front of me. So what makes a charity auction for me interesting is what I see in front of me. So it's kind of creating this play for everybody who's sitting in the audience to be part of. So the first person who starts bidding, I try to get their name or find sort of a defining feature. Are they wearing a certain color that helps me remember who they are? And then I refer to them that throughout that throughout the auction as that person so that they always feel like they're part of it. And it's so funny. I can't tell you how many times I've been stopped on the street or at a grocery store or at a restaurant. Someone's like, I was the bidder at X auction wearing the blues, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, I always smile and say, oh, my gosh, of course. It's so great to see you. I have absolutely no idea. I get off stage and it's like I've blacked out the past half hour. But it is so funny. Um, you know, people just love to feel recognized. They love to feel seen and they love to feel part of something bigger. And that's so much about being a successful charity auctioneer is getting on stage and realizing that you probably have 10 people in an audience who can afford to buy what you're selling. So it's really about engaging everybody else and making them have fun. You have to be a pretty confident person to do what you do. Yeah. Is that confidence hardwired for you or no. did you learn this? Where does that confidence come from? I think I've I've always been a strong-willed person and I and I feel like I have had confidence, but I mean I absolutely fake it as much as anybody else. And I and I have those moments of my life where I feel like I've been in situations where I'm like 
oh, I don't want to have to do this, but I just feel like I have to do it. And then I think what happens and what I've seen throughout the process of writing this book and sort of coming into my own as an author, which was even a moniker that took a long time and a mantle that took a long time for me to really own because I was like, I'm not an author. Even after you wrote the book? Yeah, even after I wrote a book. Well, I'm not really an author. But I am an author, you know. Yes, you are. Yeah, it's kind of, it's hilarious. You can own that. Yeah, now I can own that. But I think the confidence comes from pushing myself to believe it and then working through that process and really owning it and owning that space. And so in moments where I don't feel confident, pushing myself to pretend that I am confident. And then once I've done it, I'm sort of like, well, that worked. So next time it won't feel so scary or so unsure. Yeah. Because that's really what confidence is. It's pushing through fear more than anything. You know, I I was saying to someone when I was doing the case studies in the book, I have 30 case studies from different women in a variety of different industries. But a lot of them I didn't know when I was reaching out to. I'd sort of secured an email through an auction that I had taken where maybe they had been the MC or through a friend of a friend. And I remember getting the first rejection. And it's hard sometimes to send that email, even though it's so anonymous and so easy to just press enter, you know, return, send, whatever it is. And there were so many times when I would be physically wincing as I sent the email and I got the first no back. And I remember thinking, oh, that feels terrible. But you know what? Next time it won't feel so bad. And that's what you just have to remember. I mean, that's what confidence is. You build it, you build confidence. And I think that that's where I am now. I feel very strong and very confident. I'm confident as a charity auctioneer because I have built that skill. And I'm confident in my job and in my person because I've built those skills too. Yeah. Well, you have some incredibly high-profile people that you that you reference this these case studies. These are very high-profile women. I don't know who turned you down. <laughs> yeah. Definitely about 20, 25 people who, you know, for, I was asking in a very short timeline. And some of them were sort of like, I would love to do it, but I can't do this in three days, yeah. you know. And then I had so others. So more of a capacity issue. That's a different kind of rejection. Yeah, I exactly. I don't want to be a part I of mean, your project. Was is that true or not? Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, you know, but then again, it is what it is. Yeah. And there's nothing I can do about it. And maybe, you know, the book has been successful. So hopefully if I do another one, I can ask them another time with a little more lead time. There you go. There now you I've go. given you two months. So, of course, the answer will be yes. So let's talk about the book itself. I wrote my entire book between December and April 1st. Which is amazing. It was insane. I was nursing my third child. It was literally... You literally hadn't written, like, anything no, that I was had... usable before. I wrote two chapters for my proposal that, that I sold. my mind. Yeah, it was And crazy. you wrote it yourself. You I wrote it. Have like, a... no ghostwriter, nothing. And I think I'm going to write The Most Powerful Girl in the Room is You Too. Because um, it's like middle school. <laughs> it's yeah. like actually the first part of the third chapter was cut out because it was too long. Yeah. So I was like, could this work? They're like, this is perfect. I was like, yeah. The third chapter about failure ultimately started was I played on four teams. Or I think I told this story, three teams for four years that never won a game. Mm-hmm. Basketball, volleyball, and track for, throughout middle school. We never won a single game. <laughs> I wrote my college essay about it. I'm like, this is why I'm the best loser in the world. Like, I don't care. <laughs> ultimately, I just, like, I try. I was like, we thought we were going to win every time. We never won. And my parents would be like, that was tough, but I think next week's going to be the week. I'm like, me too. Yeah. So I talk about, like, that's basically the chapter. And she was like, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what a middle schooler needs to hear. Like, you're going to fail and it's fine. You have to get over it. And that's when you become fearless. Why write a book? I just feel like there were so many people asking the same question, which was, Where do you get the confidence that you have on stage? Where does that come from? And I could never do that. I could never sell myself or sell a product or whatever it might be. And I I kept thinking to myself, but why? Why do I have this and why couldn't you? And where did I get it? Mm -hmm. And 
what did it come from and what was the journey to getting to a place where I stand on stage in front of thousands of people and it does it barely gives me even uh, like a, a an elevated heart rate and I realized it sort of it had all started in my 20s with this job and getting this job and then sort of working through this job as an auctioneer and finding that confidence in frankly an industry where I didn't I, I didn't look like everyone else. I didn't have the job that I was supposed to have. I mean, a 24-year-old woman is not what you think of when you think of an auctioneer. <laughs> I mean, even today, I say to people in audiences, I think I said this when I mm -hmm. met you that day, that if you close your eyes and you even have an understanding of the auction world, if you close your eyes and think of an auctioneer, even today, you would not think of me. You would think of a gentleman who was British in a black tie selling a Picasso on stage. So when I started taking auctions in my early 20s and going to take these large auctions in different cities, people would look around desperately for, quote unquote, the auctioneer because they just couldn't believe it was me. And so I would doubt. And I would doubt myself time and time again. And, you know, flash forward 16 years later where I've taken, without a doubt, probably uh, 500 more auctions than almost any other auctioneer in America. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that anymore. I feel nothing but confidence. And I'm proud of that skill. Yeah. And so that's what this book is about. It's just sort of that process of learning yeah. and, and trying to pass that back. And confidence coming from your having done it. Yes. Continuing to push forward and doing it. And the yes. more you do it, the more confident that you become. Well, it's funny because I remember when I did a speech for Christie's right after the book came out, and I just started using social media to talk about the auctions. And the funny thing was, because I did the, so many of these and I ran the program, no one had any idea that I was doing them for, I mean, for the better part of 12 years. And I would walk into work and people were like, how many auctions have you take, taken this week? Uh, four, five? And people, people could not believe it. They were sort of like, I take five a year. I don't no understand kidding. how you take so many. But again, because there was no sharing process, I just assumed that everybody was taking as many as they needed to take or wanted to take. I just was so used to doing it that it didn't seem abnormal to me. So then when I really started posting them on Instagram and I would have people saying, oh, it's so glamorous, I said to them time and time again, if I had had Instagram for the first 10 years of my auctioneering career, you would have seen me like crying in a bathroom because people <laughs> talked nonstop for 45 minutes and I couldn't even sell anything because nobody knew that I was on stage, you know. And so what you see now is the result of 16 years of late nights being backstage two hours after I was supposed to go on stage, no one paying attention, like people drunk trying to get on stage to add things, you know, so many bad experiences that... Even with speaking, which I love to do now, I do keynote speaking. They're like, well, we, you know, we don't have slides. I'm like, you know, it, it literally there could be something that blows up in the back of the room and I would still be fine. It doesn't matter to me. I can I've been through every situation. Just having people watch me and pay attention is really like the hardest thing for me because I'm used to having to corral people. So when they're staring politely, I almost don't know what to do. Is there one story that you can think of? It was like the worst of the worst. I mean, I had a man have a heart attack during an oh auction, God. like literally in the middle of the auction. People sort of gathered around and carried him off. And you know, Hard you to make a, a joke about that. I know. You have this moment of what do I do? And they're like, you know, the event organizer link saying, but keep keep going, keep going. <laughs> and I'm having that internal gut check, but is this the right call? Do I keep going? Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I sort of made, I, I stopped and I said something like, the, the good news is the gentleman who came out is okay. You know, we've been reassured that he's okay. And in the spirit of continuing to give to this organization, I want to take us back to the paddle raise and keep going so that we can make sure that we are not losing out on any money. 
Really, I didn't know what else to say at that point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, people who are drunk who start heckling you when you first start taking auctions, it's so unnerving. But now it's amazing when someone starts heckling me from stage because it gives me something else to work with. Um, the people who get up drunk on stage, I mean, I had a huge celebrity who just started rambling incoherently for like 10 minutes about God knows what. And then it went into politics. And oh my. yeah, that was a really that was a difficult one. And I was young. So then when it, something similar happened about five years later, I just sort of put my arm around him and took the microphone and said, well, everybody loves a microphone and just sort of pushed him off stage gently. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's confidence that yeah. comes with time and practice. Absolutely. You're very good on social media, too, and have done yeah, a great so job fun. in. But do you have somebody who helps you? You must. I, not now. No, no, I did. I hired someone right around the book launch. So I had uh-huh. someone in April and May that I was like, I can do this because I like like I enjoy it. Yeah. I keep all I just take pictures all day and then I create a story. But at does night. the doorman? I mean, is the doorman taking your picture? Anyone. <laughs> Anyone. Like, I have no shame. And actually, if they're younger, it's better. Can we use that? Of course. Oh, my God. That's the funniest thing. People are like, oh, people ask me all the time, do you have a professional photographer? I'm like, my daughter, Beatrice. I, like, throw the phone at her. I'm like, I'm going to just turn my head a bunch, just take a bunch of pictures. Yeah. She took the best picture I have on social media, which was at the beach. She just took my camera. She's not supposed to hold my phone unless I ask her to take pictures of me. So I'm like, what am I setting this girl up for? Um, And she took a picture. You're in trouble, sister. Oh, my God. I know. She's like, can you take a picture of me? I'm like, that's not the way it works. (laughs) When you're 12. Oh, my God. Hopefully this whole social media thing will blow up by that point. Um, No, I I was like walking the beach with my little little one. And my daughter was just taking pictures. And we got back. And I had – because, you know, like little kids will just take the phone and they can swipe up and yeah. so I had all these pictures of my walking with my little daughter on the beach and someone's like that's amazing so you had like a professional photographer I'm like no it's my six-year-old <laughs> oh no I asked like guys who have hot dog carts no I ask everyone like you can ask anyone to take your picture everybody will do it okay so anyone who's young, young picture takers oh yeah they drop to one knee I'm like get up I'm too tall for that I'm too tall for that um no they like drop to one knee they they know the angling they're doing the lighting yeah anyone who's young knows I mean the younger the better frankly yeah. Well, the feed is great. Oh, thank you. It is. No, it it's really like one is. one post a day. Yeah. Well, I'm busy, so it like, makes it easy, you yeah. know? It's like last night I was supposed to go to a Madonna concert after my auction, and then, as I said, like it didn't work out. But so you're pretty much just Instagram. Instagram's great for me. It definitely, um, yeah, I get a lot of people just like reaching out about different opportunities, yeah. and that's, that's great. for. I do yeah. stuff on LinkedIn, too. So when you thought about the book... One thing that struck me, there's a lot of corporate environments that might have been a little iffy about you really showcasing what you do. Now, I see great benefit to Christie's in this case, but let's say you work somewhere else. How did you approach Christie's about the opportunity to write the book and what was their response? So I didn't approach Christie's about writing the book. I mentioned in the New York Times that I was writing a book that I had not actually written yet. And then I sold the book a week later. So I actually hadn't written anything when I sold the book (laughs) except for a chapter that I ultimately didn't even use. So with Christie's, you know, because I had been there for so long, I think that they all kind of knew that something was going on. They didn't know the timeline. And ultimately, I handed them the final galley and said, to my boss at the time, look, I'm not changing anything in here, but obviously you need to read it as a legal read to make sure that you've that I'm not naming any clients, which I didn't do. And so that for me was probably the scariest thing because I didn't know how it was going to be received. And I have a deep love of my company. I've been there for 20 years. I feel like I work with my family. And the third chapter where I talk about the salary negotiation is 
it, it was a moment for me. And I, I really thought about taking it out. My mom actually was one of the only people who had even seen the book. It was my sister and my mom. And I read the third chapter to my mom and my father, which talks about that moment where I fake a job offer to get the, ultimately the title that I, I got. And I read it to her and she texted me the next day and she said, you know, I sometimes think that things are better left unsaid. And maybe you <laughs> should just leave leave something to the imagination. And I called my younger sister and I said, you know, that's why I'm going to leave it in. Because that's the problem with women. We say it all, but we say it behind closed doors. That's right. You know, yes. so whatever. Like, let's just leave it in and see what happens. So what happened? How so did they nothing respond? Happened. They've been amazing. I mean, my, I did eight events for Christie's in London. I've done multiple events for Christie's in New York and all over the country. And I think for the company, you know, we, all the companies in the world right now are really trying to – they're really trying to understand how to deal with gender issues. We live in a completely different time than we did even two or three years ago. And so – I think having a senior executive homegrown woman who is writing a book about challenges faced, not necessarily this year, but in the past, is actually a really good thing because it sparks conversation. And so, you know, the head of our HR department came in, our global head, and he he said to me, he's like, I think that this is incredible. And I did a, a town hall talk in London and in New York for our teams. And I said these things out loud. I'm like, one thing that we have always said here, which is not true and I want to disavow everyone of this notion, you do not work for the glamour of a job. You work for a paycheck, and we are lucky to have you here. And so you need to remember that. And that's not just here. That is any job you will ever own. And I've given, I've given over 70 speeches about this book, and I remember saying that exact thing at a, a sort of ladies' lunch of probably women in their 50s and 60s. And I looked over, and there was a woman who was crying, literally crying at the table, and I went up to her afterwards and she said, I can't tell you how many times I was told how lucky I was to have a job and how lucky I was to go to work every day. And she said, to see those words on a page is so life-changing because someone is saying it out loud. Yeah. And so I think that that's just, you know, if you choose, which I have chosen to put myself out there in this way, then you have to be truthful because... If I'm not truthful and I do sort of like a, a lovely gloss of everything that's happened, then this book is fake. And people could, people can see that. I wanted it to be real so that the next time a woman walks into a room where someone says, well, you're working for the glamour of the job, she thinks to herself, no, I'm not. And then she says it out loud. Yeah. You've been on book tour. You've mm -hmm. had an opportunity to get some real-time feedback yeah. from women and probably men who are, I hope, yeah. who are reading this terrific book. Um, you mentioned the reaction that you got from this woman, which is, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. What other reactions have you gotten? How has the book been received? It's been amazing. I mean, I get, I talk a lot about writing letters and handwritten letters. I get so many handwritten letters at my office. I have a stack of them of people who take one part of the book and talk about how it's impacted their life or how they have seen something in their life that they went through something similar. And when my editor, when we were sort of talking about the book, I remember her saying to me, you work for Christie's. You have a gold stamp. You live in New York City. You live with three children in New York City. It's sort of like this, oh, my gosh, look at this, look at this woman and everything she's done. She's like, tell us about the girl from Lake Charles, Louisiana and how she got there. Because nobody cares at this point. Like, you already have what you need to get the check. 
So what's the story behind it? And so what I have loved more than anything about the feedback is that people see themselves. Like, I'm the 21-year-old girl who just moved to New York and I don't have any friends. And, like, I love that you said that there, I'm in this position at work where I don't feel like I'm getting what I need. What can I do? So that's been just the most rewarding part of this, which I didn't really foresee. I thought I'd kind of write the book and that would be it. But it's been incredible. I mean, the feedback and the reaction and just the comments, it's been it's been amazing. Yeah. We mentioned that you have three young children. You have yes. two daughters and a son, yes. if I'm remembering girl girl. correctly. <laughs> yeah. And they're all under the age of? Uh, six. Six. Okay. Yeah. So they are relatively young. Your girls yeah. are relatively young. What does this book mean to you where they're concerned? You know, I just think it's all about role models. You know, my little one sees the book. She goes, there's mommy's book. I was on the Today Show, and my nanny actually taped her in front of the TV. She said, Rhea, our nanny said, um, who's that? And she said, that's mommy. And then she turned back around, and she goes, that's mommy's book. That's mommy's book. She's two years old. That's and amazing. so she sees it, and the book just came out in Spanish. And so now she carries around and said, this one's in Spanish. And it's just it's amazing <laughs> to see just, you know, what you can show your children just by what you do. And I've been talking about the next book, which we're talking, it's called The Most Powerful Girl in the Room as You, where it's really aimed at sort of middle school girls. Mm-hmm. And I say to women all the time, they say to me, oh, I, you know, I, I can't I can't wait for this book for my daughter. And I say, but read it yourself first, because I can write a book, but you doing it is what shows your daughters. That is what shows them what they can do and how far they can go in their life. And sons, too. You know, I think so much about my son is raising him to be a good brother, husband, ultimately, if that's what he chooses mm-hmm. to do. Like, that is so much a part of raising children. It's the respect for one another. Because I have two brothers and a sister, and it's always been like that with us. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much great stuff in the book. Um, you talk about the importance of networking. You talk about the role model that your dad was yeah. as it relates to, to that. And you talk about that in the chapter. Yeah. But one of the things I'd love for you to talk about, because even sitting here talking to you and having a chance to get to know you, I'm still mystified as to how the heck you do everything that you do in a given day. <laughs> and I feel strange. like I get a lot done in a day. Um, talk about your productivity tips. I realize that sounds so lame. But if other people are like me and they're listening, they're like, how the heck does she do all of this? You talk a bit about your tips for efficiency mm-hmm. in the book. Walk us through kind of your, your strategy. Management. Yes, time management and strategies. I mean, time management and strategy is just the most important thing in life. (laughs) I basically, I have a calendar that is an entire month with just the numbers. And in that calendar that I keep with me at all times, in my purse at all times, I have every single thing that's going on. No, wait, this is a physical paper, write it in pen calendar. calendar. And I have one at home too that is on our counter so that everybody can see it. It says, everything that's going on in a given day. And I basically start on Sunday night. I look at the week ahead and I try to figure out exactly what I'm going to need to make it successfully through that week alive. (laughs) And because every week for me is different, you know, it's like there are days where two of our children go to one school, one goes to another school. They all have different after school sports. And so it's a combination of getting, I lean on help 
just crazily. My in-laws are incredible. My parents are here whenever I need them to be. I have brothers and sisters. We have a wonderful nanny. I use babysitters. Like I am never above activating every resource at my fingertips <laughs> to make sure that everything is taken care of and everything is covered. But then in terms of the day, I just really try to move things along. I don't go to meetings that are two hours if I think that they're unnecessary. I'll send someone else and get the minutes from those meetings and review them and come back with my thoughts. I just don't waste time on things that don't need time wasted. And in terms of the auction, when I have an auction at night, everything in a day is based around when I need to walk out of the door for that auction. So I will look at a day and say, okay, if I have to get the kids to school at this time and I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this, I've already set out my stuff for the auction tonight. I know exactly what I'm going to wear so that when I come back in, I don't have to think about that in addition to everything else. Um, if it's anything at work related that I have to do that has something to do with work, I make sure that I have as much information as I need going into it so that I'm not wasting time getting it done. So it's really all about planning. You know, it's like packing early. I don't start packing the day before a trip. I start packing on the Monday because I know that there will be things I will forget along the way. Yeah. So it's just getting things done in advance. Is your husband also a planner? No. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> that, can, that can provide a lot of tension, I have found, well, in a marriage when I, one is a planner and one is not. I think he's the, the reason people are always like, I don't understand. Like, w- w- how does marriage work? And I think ultimately it is that you are not married to yourself. My husband said to me recently, I often think if you were married to yourself, you would literally be dead by now. <laughs> and he's like, and if I was married to myself, I probably would never leave the house. <laughs> so we're a good we're a good pair in that in that respect. He's very relaxed and very calm. And I think you I mean, we've been together for 15 years. I think you know that about each other. And I think I'm allowed to really just hit the accelerate whenever I need to because I know that he's not going to be pushing me in the same way so that if I need to flop on the couch one night and watch Succession, which is such a good show, he'll be right there, (laughs) right there to help me. (laughs) You mentioned the book, The Most Powerful Girl in the Room is You. But what else is next? What else is on the horizon? So I actually have a meeting next week um, with with TV and film. With I'm represented by CAA, so we have someone interested in optioning the book, which is really exciting. As a movie or a talk show or... Oh, for television. Fantastic. So we'll see. We'll see. But that's always been on this table. And then the other thing that I've just really loved doing is keynote speaking. That's also been, you know, I'm represented by CA for that too. And it's just so fun. It's such an extension of something that I already do. But actually with a script, unlike charity auctioneering, I actually yeah. have words in front of me. So that's that's going to be, I think, another new outlet for me. But yeah. yeah, there's no, I don't take one thing and think that that's going to be it. There are always like nine or ten different things going on. And I'm starting a travel company with my sister called She Gone um, for female travelers who want to travel by themselves and are looking for community and safety and amazing pampering products. So that'll be coming at some point this fall as well. That's great. Lydia, we ask every person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack or mantra. Maybe it's advice that you would have given your 20-year-old self as you were just launching. You've given us already amazing advice. But if you had to boil it down to one thing, what would that be? Live the life that you want to live because nobody else can do it for you. So whatever you want in life, go after it and never look back. Thank you so much. No, it was such a pleasure. I loved it. Thank it was you. great, great fun. 
To learn more about Lydia, I've included links in the show notes, including a link to her terrific book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. A big thanks to our friends at CDM Studios here in New York City for hosting us today. And remember, at She Said, She Said, you will always find inspiring women like Lydia who are sharing their stories and their authentic perspectives in ways that have a positive impact on all of us each and every day. Thanks so much for listening.